Hey everyone, welcome to Reformed Podmatics, hosted by the pastors of Almond Valley Christian Reformed Church in Ripon, California. It's Pastor Mark Van Dyke and Pastor Zach Dewey, and this podcast exists to promote the vibrant, biblical, and historically informed face of Reformed theology, both in our context and beyond. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. This is Pastor Zach. And this is Pastor Mark. And today we are continuing on with our theme of Christmas, and we're going to be taking a look at the main doctrine of Christmas, the doctrine that Christmas is really all about, that is designed to cast our attention on the incarnation. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a lot of distractions this time of year. There's a lot of uh, things that are beckoning for our sentimentality and for us to just enjoy, you know, the hot chocolate, the movies, as we talked about a couple weeks ago. But we really do, as Christians, always need to think about what really is the core of this holiday, if it's going to have any meaning for us. And so it's a good reminder to take a look at the key doctrines. Uh, The the church calendar pulls us back again and again to the key doctrines of the Christian faith. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so this, of course, is the incarnation that we're talking about. Uh, And so I just want to share as we begin uh, one of my favorite lines from a poem uh, from Holy Sonnet 15 by John Donne, the great English poet. He just simply says, "'Twas much that man was made like God before, but that God should be made like man much more. And that is what the incarnation is all about, God becoming uh, like man, becoming man himself. So we should maybe start with just Mm -hmm. defining our terms. What is the incarnation? Uh, What do we mean when we use that word? Absolutely, it is essential to define the word. And um, maybe before we even get into the definitions i think it's great to also set the the tone of this conversation i think that when reformed ministers get together (laughs) often it is the case that we can get into cold theology pretty quickly and the incarnation does not really allow for that if one really believes what we're talking about it is an immensely beautiful uh peace inducing thrilling, Hmm. uh, mysterious doctrine that should leave us in awe. And that is the tone, I think, that we try to maintain here at our church and that I try to strike in my preaching. Um, One of my criticisms of my own camp, the Reformed Church, is that at times our doctrines sound like laws. They sound like rules, and they don't sound very beautiful at all. And good Reformed theology, what you would read in Calvin and Bavinck and Kuyper and um, other Reformed Hmm. authors as well, even the the Heidelberg Catechism, the Belgian Confession, the Canons of Dort, to me, there's a a thrill to it, and there's a a joy in the truth. And Hmm. so that is why we talk about these things. It's not as though... We found someone in our church who doesn't believe correctly <laughs> about the incarnation, so we're going to passive aggressively make this podcast to bash them with it, and <laughs> th- that's what reformed people do. 
sometimes. Yeah. And um, that's not why we're doing this. We are thrilled that the God of heaven and earth came into the form of a servant, of a humble baby who grew and did amazing mm-hmm. ministry, died on the cross, was risen, and is now in heaven. And so it's a pretty amazing story, and we love the story, and um, that's why we're talking about these doctrines. And so anyways, hmm. what is the incarnation? Um, yeah. It is God taking on human flesh, which is what John 1 is really all about. Hmm. Um, I'll often say that all the Gospels start the same way. That is sometimes a criticism of the Gospels, that, <laughs> oh, it seems like it's four different stories. Um, John 1 is quite philosophical, Mark 1 doesn't really start with the story of Jesus' birth, supposedly. Um, And Matthew and Luke give us a little bit more detail on the birth narratives. I would suggest, actually, that all four of the Gospels begin with the doctrine that Jesus is the Son of God. Hmm. And so that's seen in John 1 very poetically and philosophically. That's seen in Mark in the very first verses of Mark where it says that this is the account of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, mm-hmm. um, which fills that that criteria, I would say. And then obviously you have Mark and Luke including um, the birth narratives a little bit more narratively and um, almost journalistically. So um, all four Gospels begin with this doctrine, Jesus Christ is God's Son in human flesh. Yeah, that's a really great point too to start off with. What is the what is our sort of feeling behind this this mm. episode? It's really not to to get into the cold dead <laughs> doctrine, but to get into the the significance of it. And this is this is one doctrine that really brings us back to that great theme of mystery. Mm-hmm. And it's something to be worshipped. It's something to be enjoyed, and to be humbled by, uh, and to uh, just be awed by Mm. um and so yeah the incarnation i i I often tell people that it's good to just look at that main word carn Mm -hmm. carne i think of carne asada uh so it means (laughs) it means meat uh, or flesh and so this is god uh, stepping into human flesh uh but it's also important as soon as we say that to define what that what that means as well a little bit does god just come into human flesh and so is jesus god's mind with a human body uh no Mm. so we could look at some of the early christological heresies uh and just sort of uh i don't want to run through them all there's way too many to Mm -hmm. look at but uh it's important to sort of know that No, this is not just God operating a human body. He's sort of the the software, and he's using human hardware. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's also not that this is somebody who was born a man but became God and was sort of adopted by God. That would be called the adoptionism position. Um, it's all, it's not that mm. this person was God but only appeared to be a human body. Uh, that would be docetism. Mm-hmm. Um which means that he seemed or this was an illusion. Uh, that's, that's helpful to think about too. And then in that case, there would certainly be no need for a birth narrative, for example. Yeah. yeah. What would be the point of it? Yeah. Um, 
and then yeah, the first one that I mentioned I didn't give a name to. It was that God sort of operating the mind of a human body. That would be Apollinarianism. So these are sort of helpful to know because there is a lot of ways of m- confusing what the incarnation really is. Um, but it's helpful to keep in mind the the ancient dictum of he is two natures in one person, yeah. uh, and that's what we get from the creeds. And that's helpful to keep us to keep in mind that he is one hundred percent God, one hundred percent man, mm-hmm. and that he is both of those at the same time united in himself, in Christ, in Jesus Christ, well, the God man. It's actually kind of funny how that was one of the great passionate theological points of Saint Nicholas of all people. Yeah. And so um, I saw a pretty hilarious meme actually, where the kid <laughs> approaches. Santa Claus in the mall, and the kid asks Santa, homo uzias or homoi uzias? <laughs> and Santa says, what? And then the kid says, you're not the real Saint Nicholas. <laughs> because he doesn't understand the difference between the homo uzias and the homoi uzias. And so homo uzias means of the same essence. Homo, same, uzias, essence. And it Christ is of the same essence as God, the Father, hmm and not of similar essence, homoi uzias. And that was a big question in the early church. Maybe not something yeah. that people get too concerned about in our day and age, but um, it still needs to be remembered that uh, sort of the words of the Nicene Creed, which are mm-hmm. so helpful, that he is true God from true God, begotten, mm-hmm. not made, of yeah. the same essence as the Father. And uh, that is made possible only through the miraculous incarnation of Jesus. And that's exactly why I have a sweater with a picture of the real St. Nicholas on it that says, <laughs> ho, ho, homo usias on it. <laughs> sure. I think it confuses everybody when I wear it, but there's a good teaching point there that he is fully God. And that is to deny the doctrine of Arianism or the heresy of Arianism, which is not the Arian. You may be thinking of white men in prison running an underground sort of organization. <laughs> Arians. That's the wrong Arians. That's not what we're talking about. Arianism that we're talking about is from uh, the 4th century, uh, sort of spurred on by the leader named Arius, mm-hmm. from which the name comes. But here we are now already defining all these terms and isms, and we're going <laughs> straight into making a cold doctrine, which we have set out to not do. So we can ask more important questions then, other than what is the incarnation, we should ask ourselves, well, why is mm. it so essential? Why is mm. it so important for our faith and for our salvation? Uh, that's a really helpful thing to begin to start asking. Um so what do you think, Mark? What do you think about that question? So yeah, why does it matter that we believe in this doctrine of the incarnation? Well, firstly, I would give a reason that might not jump to people's minds right away, that we believe that God's word is true. And so these stories of Jesus' birth, which is a supernatural, miraculous birth, in very clearly laid out in the Gospels of Luke and, and Matthew, are true stories that an angel really did come to Mary to tell her that she was with child, that uh, she would deliver a son, that his name should be Jesus. We believe that those stories are literally true and the Bible can be trusted. So that's one reason to believe in it is is that God's word is trustworthy. Um, but there are all kinds of personal reasons. There are lots of theological reasons 
um, hmm. to hold on to this doctrine of the incarnation, um, what would you say is the main theological reason? What do you think? The main theological reason to hold on to the doctrine of the incarnation? Or just why it's important, maybe. Why it's important. I yeah. think in the incarnation, and maybe you could disagree with this, but the most important thing about the incarnation is that it is God uniting himself yeah. to humanity and stepping into our sphere or into our realm and taking on all of what it means to be like us. And I think that this is important when we think about salvation because it mm. could not have possibly happened in any other way. God could not have saved mankind or saved man um, or humans mm -hmm. uh, without doing it this way. Mm. Um, for God to just save us by divine fiat and just sort of snap his fingers and say, you're saved. Yeah, forgiven. Uh, that would yeah. go against God's character. That would be inconsistent with who God is and his justice. God needed there to be a payment for sin, and man could only pay for, could only atone for man's sin. Uh, the 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 sacrifices and atonements that were being made in the old covenant prior to the arrival of Christ on the scene were insufficient, and they were mm -hmm. only typological or they were only shadows pointing mm -hmm. forward to the the coming lamb of god the true lamb of god and only that sacrifice could have any effect for the salvation of god's people even in romans chapter 3 it paul talks about the forbearance that god had with people prior to christ god in effect was looking forward to christ's arrival and it wasn't that they were being saved by the different atonements that they were making for their sin, but it was that these atonements were pointing forward mm -hmm. again. Mm -hmm. And that is the only way that it could, that it could possibly happen. And so the incarnation, I think has to happen. That's yeah. why I think it was theologically necessary uh, for it to take place. Yeah. It illustrates not only God's mercy, that's kind of the obvious theological right or attribute of God that we can gain from the incarnation, that he's so hmm. merciful he would come near us in Christ. Yeah. But it also fulfills the requirements of his justice. And so I, I like the, we could think of the fiat model of forgiveness in terms of money. If uh, Jeff Bezos, who has billions and billions of dollars, um, was owed $10 by someone, um, it's possible that Jeff Bezos could, could just say, well, I have, I have, Fifty billion dollars, or however much he has, just you don't don't worry about paying me back. But that would actually be unjust, hmm. uh, even though it's so small. That would mm -hmm. still be and technically an injustice against Jeff Bezos. Mm -hmm. And uh, now, if that would happen, that would be, of course, just fine. But that also forgets that the the massive amount of sin and debt that we have accrued against God. Um, some people yeah. look at it with that Jeff Bezos illustration and say well that's that's a lot like me i mean i do a lot of good things and every once in a while i, I might mess up like owing jeff bezos ten dollars but you know he's just got so much he, he shouldn't even really care mm -hmm. and so um not only will the fiat attitude to or, or approach to atonement um neglect the need for justice but it actually will often give people too low a view of our own forgiveness as well. Hmm. And so the 
incarnation shows yeah. not just the love of God, but the amount of uh, the amount and the value of the sacrifice that was required for our salvation was that only God Himself could meet that value in His own death. That's the canons of Dort really talk a lot about yeah. the value of Christ's death. And um, it is the only death that could fully atone for hmm. the sins of the whole world. And that is John three sixteen yeah. in a nutshell, right? Absolutely. For God so loved the world, or God loved the world in this way, that he gave his only begotten son, that sure. whoever should believe in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. You see God's, the depth of God's love on full yeah. display in the incarnation. And it's, yeah, through the incarnation that God unites himself to us. Uh, this is where I think the Heidelberg Catechism becomes very helpful in explaining sort of the logic, the, the scriptural logic at play in in the Incarnation. Uh, if we were to look at the first um, first section of the Catechism in chapter, or questions 15 through 17, which I'm not going to read all of it, it gets into the idea of we need a, a mediator to deliver us, mm-hmm. but what kind of mediator... mediator uh, ought we to look for and it says that one who is truly human and truly righteous and why is this why must this mediator be truly human and truly righteous um, and true god essentially and the answer it gives in question or an answer 16 is this god's justice demands that human nature which has sinned must pay for its sin Hmm. but a sinner could never pay for others and so we need one who is true god and that is what it gets at in question and answer 17 and 18. We need God to redeem us because only God could have taken on, only a human could have paid for human sin, but only a God could have uh, could have been raised from, could have raised himself from the dead, could have survived uh, that payment, that penalty, that wrath, mm-hmm. and could have distributed that perfect righteousness mm-hmm. to other humans. Any other human, a sinful human, could not have done that at all. Hmm. Yeah, and um, one other, so that's that's really in a lot of ways a logical, not just a theological, but a logical hmm. uh, defense of the incarnation. Yeah. And um, and I, I do think logic is in the Christian's favor in this regard. It's Some people might be surprised by that because the incarnation <laughs> is one of the most mysterious doctrines and it is certainly a miracle and yet, it's a miracle that makes sense given the logic of hmm. uh, what God has laid out in the Old Testament sacrificial system, yeah. um, or even the logic that we experience in our own lives as well, where you see a wrong is done and you see a hunger for justice. You want justice to be achieved in this world, and you want a penalty to match a crime. Um, that's a that's a logical thing that we would want to happen. And so we can apply that logic then to all of humanity and say, well, what is the mm-hmm. only um, the only price, the only one who could pay a price so great, it has to be God. And so therefore God must have taken on human flesh, which he did in Christ. And so we're, we're thankful that uh, the logical needs of salvation are met in the incarnation and atonement of Christ as well. So I, I like that. Um, it's not only theological, but it makes sense, hopefully, in people's minds as well. It's actually a pretty simple message that kids can understand, that 
wow, we have all this sin. Well, who's going to pay for it? Not us. We can't do that. Hmm. Um, and we can't fix ourselves, but, but Jesus can do that. I think my own children, they, they can understand that at a very young age. That's one of the beautiful things of Christian theology. So um, another hmm. thing that the confessions really draw out in the incarnation is the agency of God in yeah. uh, providing for our salvation. So it's not a passive salvation. It's not as, just as though we're forgiven. Um, you can go away now. Hmm. Uh, but this is a God who comes close to us and um, reconciles us to himself actively. I really like what Tim Keller says about um, the difference between um, forgiveness and justification. He says, hmm. forgiveness says your debt has been paid, you may go. Justification says your debt has been paid, you may come. Hmm. You may come and now into full relationship with me. And so... Christ coming into the world in the flesh showed not only, it wasn't just the necessary fact that had to happen for him to die and forgive our sins, Mm -hmm. but Christ coming in the flesh is God with us who has died and who was raised to life and continues to have a dual human God nature. Mm -hmm. And so we are with God now, um, through Christ, through His Holy Spirit, and there is there's a sort of a permanent unity yeah. that God has earned, um, or has uh, even enjoyed, and and now continues to experience with humanity through the incarnation. That's hmm. a big factor for a lot of Reformed theologians, like um, Herman Bavinck actually wrote a lot about this as well. That hmm. that that. God taking on human flesh um, unifies him to humanity um, in a very different way than any other world religion could offer. Yeah, and that's how John Nevin, one of my favorite theologians who I've mentioned before on this podcast, goes on to explain in his book, The Mystical Presence, uh, he basically says that this is what all of creation has been looking forward to. Mm. All of the Old Testament has been pointing forward to this moment when God would unite himself uh, to humanity. And it's this great fact that it happens and that it's, it's something that we should see as uh, really like at the center of the Christian gospel, not to say that it's the gospel summed up by itself. And maybe that's where I even will disagree with Nevin is that he sort of does make it sound like the incarnation is the, the summary of the gospel. Hmm. Uh, and I don't think I would go that far but we need to see in the incarnation a pivotal moment. And I mean that with a capital P uh, in, in human history that God now has stepped to down to be with us. This is what, or what Philippians two is getting at as well, that he does not uh, grasp at equality with God, with the father, but he humbles himself, taking the form of a servant, of a man, mm. uh, and dying on a cross, a sinner's death, uh, mm. and, and being, and he's raised up. And so just the other day, actually, I was speaking with a young person who came into, into my office to, to talk. And he, we were actually talking about Nevin. And one of the helpful things that I think the incarnation and through Nevin's work is where I really learned this, but the incarnation 
we should see it as a significant factor of the gospel, not merely as just the mm. you know the prerequisite for yeah. for the atonement, uh, but it it, sh- it should have a very large uh, implication on how we think about the gospel. It should mm. cause us to to. I think broaden our understanding of the gospel. So often if you ask somebody, what's the gospel? They'll say, well, Jesus died for me for my sin. Uh, so they w- really want to look at the crucifixion mm-hmm. and that's a very Protestant thing to do. And I, as a Protestant very much love that. And I, I, I personally hold very strongly to penal substitutionary atonement. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that the gospel is broader than that. And the Heidelberg catechism asks in, in question 23, I believe it is, uh, what are the articles of the gospel? And then it answers with the Apostles' Creed, mm. which is an interesting way okay. of answering it. And so in the Apostles' Creed, we have a few very important things. We have who the question about who God is answered. God is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we also have what God has done. God has created all things. The Son has, and this is very important, been see. incarnate. Yeah. Uh, he has been conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. We have the incarnation there. He suffers under Pontius Pilate. So we see sort of his life there and his active righteousness and his passive righteousness, I think. Then mm-hmm. uh, he dies and descends into hell, which I think is strange language. I think I take it to mean that he went to the very deepest parts of human existence Um uh, yeah, and, and died. Experienced ultimate. He expi- yeah, yeah, he experienced ultimate suffering and yeah. death, and then he is raised, ascended into heaven, and sends his spirit. That's what we see in the mm. end of the Apostles' Creed, um, and we also see that he's coming again. So I was telling this this young person: uh, incarnation, death, resurrection, ascension, Pentecost, ascending of the Spirit and the return of Christ, those are all essential doctrines to the gospel. Mm -hmm. Uh, If Jesus just dies for us and he stays in that grave, it doesn't mean much for us. Uh, If he just is incarnate but doesn't die for us and get raised, it doesn't mean much for us. We need all of these pieces to, to have a good understanding of what the gospel is because it's when we are... And it's through unity with Christ, through our union with him in each of these movements of the gospel that we receive the the good news and the the benefits of the gospel. Mm. Um, But ultimately the benefit is him. So in the incarnation, we're united to him. In his death, we die with him. This is Romans 6. And we are raised with him. And then if we are, we ascend with him. Ephesians 2 says we are seated with him in the heavenly places now. Uh, And then the, the the whole way that any of this is possible is because Christ sends his spirit in Pentecost and through the spirit's work, we are united with him. And then we look forward to his return, which I think is part of the good news as well. Yeah. And each of those lines of the apostles creed is a comfort in some way. Right. And so even something as simple as he was conceived by the Holy spirit and born of the Virgin Mary shows that he is supernatural and in his birth, uh, he experienced a, a miraculous birth, and yet he also was born of the Virgin Mary. He was a person who uh, had to grow up and learn, and um, all of that is really encapsulated. And so, therefore, Christ has 
a symp- sympathy and even empathy with us as regular people. That's Hebrews four, where we have yeah. we have a high a great high priest who is does not uh, sit far off and far away from us, but he is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. He was tempted in every way and was without sin, hmm. and and so that that all is really encapsulated in the, this doctrine of the incarnation. Um, I do say yeah. one more thing that's important to remember about the incarnation is, uh, well, there's lots more, but one <laughs> more that pops to my mind now is um, question and answer 35 of the Heidelberg Catechism is really helpful in showing the agency and the intentionality of the Son in incarnation. I think mm-hmm. that it is often said, maybe I've been guilty of this as a pastor as well, um, almost exclusively that God sent his son, the father sent the son into the world to uh, take away our sins, to die on the cross, and so forth. And if that's all we ever say, it might make it sound like Jesus was just, oh, okay, Dad, I'll, I'll go do that, you know, <laughs> and um, he's doing a chore almost, yeah. like the the ultimate chore and taking care of the world, cleaning up the world yeah. that, that his father sent him to go do. Um, but I like where Q&A 35 says, what does it mean that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary? The answer is that the eternal Son of God, who is and remains true and eternal God, took to himself through the working of the Holy Spirit from the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary a truly human nature mm-hmm. so that he might also become David's true descendant like his brothers and sisters in every way except for sin. So the phrase that I really want to hone in on is that he took to himself human flesh, and it wasn't just a passive obedience. It wasn't just something he was sent to do, but something he came to do. Uh, Now, of course, we do want to say that the Father sent the Son. Jesus said that many times of Hmm. himself. I've been sent from the Father. I'm going back to the Father that's a huge theme in the book of John. Um, but he also actively sought sinners. And um, that's his description of himself. He, the son of God, came into this world to save sinners, to give his life as right. a ransom for many. And it was an active thing. I mean, he says that also in John, where the, my life isn't taken from me, but I lay it down. Um, and Sometimes at Christmas time, we might overemphasize the sending of the Father, and uh, yeah. maybe a little bit de-emphasize the agency and intentionality of the Son in all of this work. Yeah, we can sort of look at it as a sort of oh, Jesus was pretty ho hum about coming, and <laughs> it was just part of the covenant that you know was established before you had to the do beginning these of time to full the rules. You know, yeah, yeah right. But he he came with full volitional will and mm-hmm. desired to save God's people. Uh, this wasn't an afterthought for him, but it was a joyous thing for him to do, to come and to lay his life down. Mm-hmm. Uh, makes me think of a comment from Matthew Poole, the great British commentator from, I want to say the 17th century. Um, he talks about a king and his son and the king having enemies that need to be vanquished, and the son desires to go out mm. and to bring back the spoils of victory. Uh, and so that's sort of like the father sending the son, and it wasn't, it wasn't reluctant for the king's son to do that. He desired, because he loved his father so much, 
and he loved the kingdom of his father so much that he went to do that. Uh, and it was a joyous celebration. And the way he tells the story, this is his comments on 1 Corinthians 15, 27, and 28. But uh, I think it's a good picture of, of what we're talking about here, that Jesus desired very mm-hmm. much to do this. And our salvation is something Jesus wanted, earned, and lived for and died for uh, for us. Yeah, and uh, there are so many other theological angles we could approach this from, but maybe we'll turn a little bit more towards some of the pastoral and personal implications for the incarnation. Um, We might say, what difference does it make uh, for our lives today that God, the creator of heaven and earth, took on human flesh? Um, One that I, that really I go back to a lot is the uniqueness of the Christian God in comparison to all other faith, all other religions. So, mm-hmm. um, of course, you have in Islam, uh, Muhammad, who was a prophet, but they certainly would say it would be blasphemous to call him God. Mm-hmm. And so he, uh, their, their view of God is that he is so transcendent that he could never take on sinful human flesh. Um, and in other cases, like you think of things like uh, Greek and and Roman mythology, gods are really not much different than people. They have their foibles and their personality problems and their vices, their struggles. (laughs) And, um, it's just like a superhuman. It's almost like a superhero in a lot of ways in those Greek, um, stories. And of course people don't believe that theology anymore, but I think at times that's how some people think about God a little bit that, um, atheists that I've heard who are very aggressively anti-Christian, We'll think of God as just a little bit more than human. It's like he's a su- he's a Superman up in the sky, mm-hmm. and um, the incarnation, I think, maintains that God is God. He's the maker of heaven and earth, and also he came near to us as a really cool uh, little uh, trait that sets our faith up um, over and against the the. Um, the theology of, of any other religious system. And, and I think it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's to our comfort that we have that uniqueness. Yeah. It's a unique doctrine because it is showing how heaven and earth touch and yeah. are united. Yeah. And it makes sense then of the picture that revelation paints that Jesus is coming. Isn't the end of that connection. It's really the beginning mm-hmm. of, of that connection that, that the creator and the creation will be united mm. in the end. Sure. And so that's why when he comes, I think he is establishing his kingdom. His kingdom is is now beginning. It's the inauguration of the kingdom of God. And Revelation paints the picture of that f- being fully true, that the kingdom has fully come, it has descended out of out of the heavenlies, and, and God lives with his pa- people and reigns with them in the new heavens and new earth. Uh, and that doesn't mean that the new heavens and new earth are, they replace the old ones, but they have been made new through what Christ has done and reconciling all things to himself. So that, that is a very good pastoral implication. Uh, mm. Another one that, that comes to mind for me is that matter matters. And so this sort of is similar to that one. If we think back about uh pagan religions we can we can we can see in the greco-roman empire one of the 
commonly held beliefs was the belief of Gnosticism, Mm -hmm. that there was a spirit-matter dualism, that spirit is good, matter is bad, and so our creaturely, fleshly, earthly existence is sort of something to be uh, moved beyond, and we want to move into the spiritual realm and leave behind the physical realm. It was sort of seen as a prison, the physical realm. It's in the way. Yeah. It's in the way. And yeah. so a lot of early Christians struggled with, with this because they were so entrenched in that mindset that uh, they struggled with, with seeing how their bodies were good. Uh, but we <laughs> see in Christ that not only... Evangelicals can really fall into that yeah, today as well. Like, totally. Yeah, with the pure, uh, sort of purity culture. Yep. Yeah. And so this doctrine really speaks loudly to that and says no god god created all of matter and god has assumed a body to himself therefore our embodied existence is a good thing that is being redeemed by god in christ Uh, and so we should see our salvation not as something that only happens to souls only but salvation is something that happens also to all of creation. Mm-hmm. All of creation is groaning for for redemption and for renewal. And so, yes, our souls are saved, and that is absolutely mm-hmm. essential to say. We, we do, in evangelism, want to win souls, mm. uh, but we also, through those souls, want to win whole people yeah. as well. Yeah, and uh, that is, it's such a fuller salvation if if salvation was only about souls, then it would really just be about ideas. Yeah, exactly. Um, and and so the fact that it is about body and soul um, really then required that Christ would have a kind of physical victory, which is the resurrection, yeah. um, that points forward, like the Catechism says, to our future resurrection as well. So yeah. the totality of Christian salvation um, is is such a comfort, but that totality also then required the incarnation, the physical suffering of mm. Jesus, um, and uh, his victory over not just sin, but death as well. Yeah. Um, and so, again, um, the necessary prerequisite for that is the incarnation, but um, hmm. But it, it means so much more than that, I would say, as well. So our bodies matter. Um, it is often the case that evangelicals are very guilty um, hmm. in falling into a Gnosticism, particularly you're going to hear about this at funerals, where um, oh, I think yeah. we talked about this a little bit in our episode on eschatology, <laughs> where every Christian must believe that Jesus is going to return and make everything, include, including the physical world, new, we are going to be risen at that day. And all of this shows that it's not just that we're whisked away, we're spirited away mm-hmm. um, into heaven forever to have a disembodied existence, yeah. um, but that Christ will give us glorified bodies, as it says in 1 Corinthians 15, what was sown perishable will be raised, will be raised imperishable. Um, there's so much going yeah. on in just that... Uh, that little sentence, that little phrase, um, but that has its roots in incarnation. Yeah. Um, that Christ's body even was sown perishable and mm-hmm. it was raised imperishable. And so there And he still has a body. 
Absolutely. And that's a mystery. To me, that's actually a, almost yeah. a greater mystery than the inca- the the incarnation is yeah. Christ's union with the Father in his physical resurrected body in heaven. Now, I don't mean to <laughs> create a whole new episode here. Maybe that oh, would man. require its own. But yeah, We could go um, into a lot of debates of the Reformed and Lutheran churches back in the 16th and 17th centuries of trying to wrap their heads around this and how the that ascension out. yeah yeah the, the physics of the ascension Bro, right man. and and so <laughs> that is mysterious totally but mysterious. Um, we can certainly believe that that miracle has happened as well that christ has ascended and is returning in the in his resurrected body uh yeah. to give us resurrection bodies also so. yeah there's a whole list of pastoral implications that we could think of um, and in fact, we have written down yeah. about, I think, six ideas. Uh, but I think another one, just to, real quick, is Hebrews 1 tells us that the incarnation is about God speaking to us, God mm-hmm. revealing himself to us. Uh, he had spoken through his prophets in mm-hmm. former times, but he speaks now in Christ. And so we see in Christ what God is like in in a way that makes sense to us differently than what the old testament reveals Hmm. we see god revealed in words in written words uh in the old testament and now we see god revealed in a person Hmm. and that is a unique thing to think about uh and it also shows us that god truly is who he says he is and he lives the way that he has called us to live Mm -hmm. uh and so this sort of is I'm I'm I'll confess that Mark was sharing some ideas with me before we uh, hit record here today, and so I wanted him to sort of I've sort of set it up for him. So I wanted him to <laughs> set share it on his the tea thoughts. and I'll hit it off there. Yeah. <laughs> well, that yeah, the fact that God has a law and a way to live, and that He shows us life in Christ, um, it is so much better than if God just gave a law. Uh, uh, sort of from on high and said this is what to do and then he just kind of tells us that's the way that things should go for the rest of eternity Um, he came into the world to live a perfect life and show us how to live and it was difficult for Jesus to do this Um, Hmm. that sounds a little bit heretical actually to say that Um, Hmm. it was he was tempted um, certainly we could say his temptation was difficult from reading the temptation narrative in the book of Matthew, yeah. um, that, yeah. that he lived in accord with his own law and that, um, that should give us great encouragement that we have the mind of Christ according to first mm-hmm. Corinthians two, we have the ability to understand spiritual things in the world. He gives mm-hmm. us his Holy spirit and enables us to live in this kind of way that he has already lived in this world. It's not a bunch of ideas to be um, consumed, a bunch of rules to be followed, but there is the setting of the law in the story of Jesus' life. Mm-hmm. Um, again, somebody people might think it's really strange that I said it was difficult for Jesus to, to live in according to the law. And so maybe I'd want to nuance that. by it's never It's never as though he... Oh boy, um, that was a touch and go situation for Jesus, and he barely got through that one. That's not really yeah. what I mean. 
but we could think of something that he says like um the son of man has no place to lay his head so mm. he lived a hard life yeah and um he was tempted in every way and yet was without sin um certainly we would never want to say he desired to sin but his life his life was hard and the fact that god lived in that mm. way i think gives comfort to the person living a hard life today perhaps even struggling with uh, temptations and maybe even desires to say that uh, God overcame this. Yeah, he's he a really priest. did. Yeah, and he didn't just tell us to overcome it; he did it. Totally. Um, and so, I, I do think that that is one of the great comforts of the incarnation as well. Yeah, the solidarity that we yeah. feel with Christ. Yeah. Um, yeah. I can remember once about a decade ago being at a Rob Bell conference. Yes. Uh, Think of that as you may. <laughs> um, and he had everybody in the audience stand up. He said, if if you own a Volkswagen, stand up. So everybody who owns a Volkswagen stands up. And he says, look around. And people are starting, you know, they're looking at pointing at each other like, woo, yeah, we own Volkswagens. And then he's, he says, if you've had somebody die of cancer, now stand up. And so everybody looks, stands up and looks around. And it was this feeling of, I don't know you, but I know that we've gone through something very painful. And that sort of mm. brought people together in a strange way. Yeah, And I think that that is a helpful picture in seeing that God has suffered with us. Um, I think of the time that my dad died uh, back in January of 2015, out of nowhere. I got, I got a call out of the blue that he had just passed away from... Mm basically a heart attack and in my tears and anger and confusion as I was packing my ba bags to fly back the next morning my roommate at the time comes into my room sits up against the wall and just sat there with his head between his legs didn't say a word but I felt his presence with me and it felt like he was bearing the weight of that moment mm. with me. Mm -hmm. And he was helping me just by saying nothing, but by sort of suffering with me mm -hmm. and sharing in my grief with me and mm. not going to his room and staying away from me, but coming without even asking, just coming in my room. And that, I think, is a small, very, very small picture mm. of Christ suffering with me that he knows what this is like he he feels it he he has felt it himself yeah and that is huge he's not just some transcendent god up there far beyond me remote from me but that he is here with me and has suffered and known the pain that i go through yeah uh, that is incredibly important and uh yeah that's a really powerful story and example um we could think of another example as sort of think of a military that hmm. uh god is not just the general who sits a hundred miles behind um the battle line but he's in the battle he goes into the battle with um hmm. with the troops yeah and um that's the incarnation basically that god is going into the battle yeah um in into a different kind of way now we don't want to be too modalistic and say that god changed in the incarnation because i think some people 
Andy Stanley, uh, try to get uh, <laughs> unhitch um, the Old Testament from the New by saying God is so different in the yeah. New Testament. Um, so God certainly had emotion that was um, invested heavily in the people of Israel and really in all the people that he had made, and that's communicated in the Noah narrative and mm-hmm. really all throughout you know, the, the Hosea prophecy and so forth of God, how God feels about how this is going. Um, but it gets just that much closer in Christ um, that he came into the battle in a different kind of way than he had been before. Um, mm-hmm. That gets to maybe where I want to close, um, talking about the the comfort of the incarnation, which really does lead into mm-hmm. the atonement of Christ, his death. Um, it's from a poem. Uh, one of my very favorite poems is called Jesus of the Scars by a World War One veteran named hmm. Edward Chilito. And so he saw World War One unfolding before him, which by many accounts was the most uh, horrific most horrific war maybe I mean it, it was different in than any other war because mm-hmm. of this confluence of uh, machinery and weaponry that was so powerful but tactics that were still old and so people just getting absolutely uh, destroyed in, in, in very terrible ways mm-hmm. um, and they're just being depression and sadness and struggle uh, on those in those trenches in World War One. Um, seeing the movie 1917 would make somebody experience mm-hmm. a little bit of what that would have been like and uh and anyways edward chilito lived through that and so he was a christian minister and he was trying to grapple with what god would have to say to us in moments of that immense suffering and mm-hmm. he does so in jesus of the scars which the final four lines of it are absolutely so powerful i've used them before on good friday but I think that they also matter for Christmas Day as well, where Edward Chilito says, The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. So he's saying, all the other gods of this world, the false gods, they seem so strong and so impressive and so hmm. on their throne all the, all, all the time, and, and just obviously they're out front. They're, they're the one um, who seems untouchable. And he's saying, the other gods were strong, you were weak, they rode, you stumbled to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a god has wounds, but thou alone. So, um, not only great poetry, but it has a great message that um, Christ came into the world um, to serve and to teach, but ultimately to be wounded. And his wounds speak to our wounds uh, because he had a physical body and um, that uh, that speaks to our physical suffering and to our souls as well. Yeah, that's that's beautiful. His body, which he united to himself, is the body that he bore suffering in mm. for our sake. And so, the you could say, I guess, Christmas and Good Friday and Easter all indwell each other, and mm-hmm. you can't have one without the others. Yeah, and they're all important. His incarnation, his death, and his resurrection speak to us loudly, even still. Yeah, and so uh, hopefully that's helpful as people start to Mm -hmm. prepare 
for their Christmas Day worship, whether that will be through a live stream at your church or maybe in person or perhaps even just like with a small group as you talk about what it means that Jesus Christ was born in a hmm. manger <laughs> and uh, and that he lived a life of, of difficulty and overcame temptation and uh, eventually made it to that cross. Yeah, I hope that wasn't a, a cold look at the yeah, doctrine. No, uh, I, I, well, and I, <laughs> it is an exciting and a, really a thrilling doctrine in a lot of ways, and we've yeah. just scratched the surface. So um, totally. keep thinking about it, people. And, and my, maybe my application as a pastor, I kind of feel like I have to make one, would be <laughs> to pray and praise God for the Incarnation um, so often it is the case that our prayer requests are pretty much items that we're thinking about or struggling with, but rarely um, rarely do we just praise God for a doctrine. And so spend some time this week praising God that he was did not stand far off, but that he took on flesh so that um, he could earn a salvation for us that is total and that is... Um, that truly is what it is. It's salvation. Don't you have a favorite Christmas hymn? I want to mm. say it's a Latin Christmas hymn. Yeah, O Manum Mysterium. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So that's it, it's all about that. And yeah. my other one would be called Indulci Jubilo, which is essentially good Christian men rejoice. But hmm. it's the same idea. Hmm. Here is the Alpha and the Omega in a manger. Um, or in O Manum Mysterium would be uh, what a powerful, amazing mystery that... The Lord would be um, beheld by animals in a manger. Um, That's, those sound like great songs. I'm not sure that yeah. I've ever heard them before. Yeah. Maybe I have. I don't know. I'll have if, to go listen to it. That's if, my homework. If one watches Rick Steve's European Christmas, they will see Omanu mm. Mysterium performed as Rick goes through the Christmas story. So hmm. um, anyways, awesome. the, it is a beautiful Omanu Mysterium. It is a great mystery, but it is a a, a one that we hold on to and that we we stake our our faith on that uh, Christ Amen. was born of Mary and it was uh, and it is true that this happened in our world hmm. um, for our salvation. So, Amen, Amen. Yeah. Thank you guys for listening. It's been a pleasure having you along. We want to wish you a Merry Christmas as you go into the rest of your week, and we'll see you next week with All another right. Merry episode. Christmas. See ya.